2: Hello, and welcome to Really with uh, with Tom and Dave. I'm Dave, and I'll just let you, well, figure out who Tom is. Uh, and we have a great show for you uh, this week. Very exciting show. Um, it, I mean,
0: it's difficult to overstate Leslie Kane's impact on the UFO-UAP conversation. Her 2017 New York Times article is widely seen as a threshold moment, one that forced the government to perhaps begrudgingly mm-hmm. admit that there is something in our skies, um, among other things. But as an investigative journalist, she's been published nationally and internationally in the Boston Globe, The Nation, and the International Herald Tribune, to name a few, and is the co founder of the Coalition for Freedom of Information. Her book, UFOs, Generals, Pilots, and Government Officials Go on the Record, was a New York Times bestseller, and her extraordinary book, Surviving Death a journalist investigates evidence for the afterlife is now a Netflix documentary that topic is multiple podcasts on its own she's also the executive producer of UFOs investigating the unknown which is now available on Hulu and we're super grateful and excited to speak with her today on Really hmm. Now a note yes Dave we're about in a our different set. location this Yeah week. where are we why are we in this Undisclosed location.
2: Well, we are in, we are at our, our very uh, good friend, Evan Schleder's studio in Hollywood, uh, because uh, there is a writer strike currently in progress. And we normally record our shows over at the CBS Radford studios, but there is a, a pickup line outside of those studios for good reason that we will not cross. Mm hmm. So we would not cross that, lo- that line. So we are here today, and uh, for, and, and until I guess
0: perhaps until the strike ends. So forgive any technical difficulties, of which there will be none. Everyone has worked wonderfully hard to create this wonderful space for us. But yes, that's why we are here.
2: All right. And so with that, I guess uh, let's get, let's talk to Leslie. Let's talk to Leslie.
0: Hi, Leslie.
1: Hi, Dave. Hi, Tom.
2: <laughs> Hi, Leslie. Good to see you again. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, I believe you've been on a few podcasts.
1: I think I have been on few. Yeah. Is a it in the thousands yet?
2: Radio. Rodeo. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I don't. I don't keep count. But yep. I don't. I, there's a lot that I don't go on because I can't. Otherwise, I would do them all day long, and I can't do that.
3: Well, so we pre- um, I'm we
1: happy to be you. with you guys. Yeah, we're Thanks.
2: super grateful. Thanks for being you. And and <laughs> I'd say one of the things. I mean, if we're if we have a niche at all, uh, one of the things in, in our what we're trying to do is sort of is sort of uh, look at how people make the transition from being maybe not at all curious to being a little curious. To uh, learning about being startled by the UFO story, and then maybe uh, coming to like coming to kind of acceptance of it, and uh, you certainly, um, w- I think, went through that a long uh, quite a while ago, as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. Like, 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 because you because you did not you didn't uh, you didn't come straight out of uh, journalism school. They have those right journalism schools. This, those things happen. Yeah. Uh, you didn't come straight out of that thing and go, "Hey, I got to get on this UFO beat." As soon as I can, because uh, you were, you're Not really... exactly. yeah, yeah you were yeah. working in in uh, public radio, I think.
1: In public radio, yeah, and I, my, I got my training by really doing. I mean, I was I was mentored by a journalist basically,
3: mm-hmm. and so
1: I never went to formal journalism school, but I I did a lot of uh, wrote articles with this journalist who was mentoring me and learned a lot just by doing it by writing stories by getting them published, and I did a lot of radio reporting too. So that was basically my training.
2: And so what sort, what sort of stuff were you reporting on when you first uh, became a journalist?
1: Well, what happened was I was very interested in the struggle for democracy in Burma because I had a close friend who had been a monk in Burma. And then he went into the jungles and there was oh, there just are horrific things going on in that country. But it also had this very high minded kind of Buddhist philosophy that permeated the culture, which was incredibly you know, just beautiful. I mean, you've never seen that before because it was integrated into how the democracy movement was was running their own government. And the Nobel Peace Prize laureate, Aung San Suu Kyi, had been put under house arrest. So I was, you know, she was like this heroic figure that everybody in Burma absolutely loved. So it was this very dramatic situation. And I went over there in 96 for a few months with this person who had been a monk before and got a lot of really interesting interviews and documentation about what was going on there and spent a lot of time interviewing former political prisoners, spent time with Aung San Suu Kyi and her colleagues, and it was just a life-changing experience. So then when I went back to California, where I was living in the Bay Area, I, um, I met one of these reporters from KPFA Radio, which is a public radio station there, and he interviewed me on his show about Burma. And then we developed a friendship and then he actually ended up working on that very show that I was interviewed for. That's how I kind of made my entree into KPFA. And to answer your question about what is reporting on everything. I mean, basically it was a a drive time five, you know, 5 p.m. popular news magazine show. And so just a lot of topics, mostly progressive type topics like human rights issues and social justice, struggles of indigenous peoples, a lot of Kind of giving um, the microphone to the people who don't normally get a microphone, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, and I just been there for a few years covering a whole lot of different topics, and that was my job.
0: Is that it's interesting you say about people who don't. And then suddenly, who don't get the microphone. I'm just, you know, in terms of, is that a corollary in your mind of of this, of the pivot to something like the UAP UFO conversation?
1: I mean, the only corollary I think I would see to the work I did there, because it was very focused on people like suffering from human rights abuses, say. I consider the way uh, some of the witnesses are treated by the culture or even by their own departments in which they work as being a kind of a human rights violation, you know, that they I mean, when you look, especially over, over in the past, not as much since 2017, but you know, the ridicule that they were subjected to, uh, they'd have medical issues that wouldn't be dealt with. They didn't feel like they could talk to anybody. They couldn't report what happened to them. They had to live with this very, some often traumatic experience and couldn't do anything about it. And, you know, that's, that's a kind of abuse as I see it. So in that sense, I feel like I've always been motivated, part of my motivation has always been to serve the witnesses and all the people involved with the phenomenon who feel they can't speak out. You know, it's just not fair, it's not right, and they deserve to be heard and respected. And so whenever there's ridicule being dealt out, I just get very angry, and I think that's connected to the work I was doing at KPFA, but the, the topic is so different that I, I don't know about every, and in any other way, if it's really yeah. connected.
2: Well, definitely, I think think you're quite right. I mean, there's definitely a lot of people are traumatized by their experiences, and then they're re-traumatized by the the stigmatization. And you know, people have people have people literally do have their lives uh, and their careers destroyed. And they become
1: isolated. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. And they become isolated, and you know, and it just it can radically change their lives. So
2: yeah, so terrible. That same element, at least of of empathy uh, for. Brought you to Burma, that empathy sort of also brings you to um, wanting to care about the individuals, the human stories involved in uh, the UFO experience.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I think that I think that's an interesting connection. I haven't thought about that very much, so thank you for making me think about it.
2: Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, all right. we. You know, that's well that's well our so, that's part of our job, I guess. Um, but then yeah, then that's, you
1: that's, that's true though. I do think it's true. Yeah, but yeah. then
2: then you did sort of hit a turning point when you uh, came across uh, a story that drew you into the UFO. Uh, field, as I understand, which was the the release of the Cometa report. Was that that was that the first thing that really drew your attention to UFOs?
1: Yes, I mean I'd been curious about them prior to that, and I'd read some books on UFOs, like I read Communion by Willie Streiber when it mm-hmm. came out, and I remember staying up all night and being terrified and everything reading it. Um, but you know it was it was just a, a passing interest, like every, any average person might have. You know what I mean? So nothing nothing that I, I never ever thought i would ever do anything professionally with ufos it was just a curiosity mm. so in this yes it was actually a report not a, a a story but this report that came arrived at my desk one day in in um, 1989 i guess it was in i mean in, in 1999 sorry um from france and that's the report you just referred to that's what really changed everything for me it was like a you know a light bulb moment it was like oh my god you know yeah. and that report to say very briefly was written by uh former generals and admirals and police chiefs from France scientists they were all retired and they were part of a think tank that had that advised the government they weren't part of the government officially so they wrote this paper they did a 90-page study that took three years interviewing lots of pilots and looking at official data on ufo cases from around the world and they they drew the conclusion that the extraterrestrial hypothesis was the most valid rational and logical explanation for the cases they studied because they could rule out they had such so much good data for these cases that they could rule out conventional explanations and they were kind of left with that And so when I saw that, like what, you know, generals are telling me we're visited, we're very likely being visited by extraterrestrials. I mean, they couldn't prove it and they said that, but they thought it was rational and valid to consider that. And what else could it be? Mm
3: -hmm. And
1: so my like journalist bulb went off and I thought, this is a huge story. Are you kidding? You know? Um, And so that's what I mean, I was thinking, like, what if the equivalent officials in America had said that? Right that's sort of happened now, but that, you know, we're talking 23 years ago. Um, I just thought it was a really big deal and that they had done this really impressive study of all this, this data. So that's what led me to it. And I, I um, received that report in the fall of 99. And then in the spring of 2000, I published a story in the Boston globe based on that report. And that was the first story I did on UFOs. And it was, very difficult to get it published it was so taboo in those days i mean we live in a different world now but it was so taboo and so difficult for this editor to feel comfortable with the story even though we were talking about generals and admirals you know Mm -hmm. uh so that's and that's was like once i had done that and the response was so positive to it i just i was no going back i was completely hooked by the topic i didn't want to do anything else
0: I was curious yeah. what the response of the French government was to the Cometa report. I mean, is it a is there a different attitude in France versus the states? I, I'm just this this relates just kind of overall to the response, but I'm just curious. Was there what, what was what was there? Did they have an official reaction to it?
1: I don't think they actually put one out. Like the president didn't say. I think some high level of officials commented on the on the UFO topic as a result of that report, as I recall. But the thing about France is it already had an official government agency called Pont that had been studying UFOs for a long time. So it was already kind of way ahead of the United States on right. that level. I mean, it had, this, it had an official agency. It was It was open to the public. They made their data public. And so I think, you know, it was sort of a parallel. This was not a report issued by that agency, but it sort of paralleled it. I think the... One of the former heads of that agency was one of the people who wrote the, the white paper. So it was, okay. it was very well connected to that. And they just had a level of openness in France that we didn't have here at the time. So it was well received and it was put into like published in a book that you mm-hmm. could buy in France.
2: Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I actually do remember reading your reporting on it. Back at that time, oh was, really? Yeah, because uh, I remember reading about the. There was one of the things that got me. As I said, I've had certain peaks and troughs in my interest in UFOs over the years, and definitely one of the peaks was when the Cometa report got reported on in the U.S. Because uh,
3: that's
2: cool. Which uh, you know, I'd say two peaks for me were the the uh, the Phoenix Lights and then the Cometa report coming out were ones where I went, okay, I, I, all right, this, I, this isn't just a curiosity. This is something that should be taken seriously. With this with this yeah, level of this level of uh of uh study being done on it
1: absolutely so, yeah. I'm glad that, that effect yeah I, and I that's what I felt when I wrote the story and then all these pilots started contacting me and saying mm-hmm. I've never been able to tell anybody about my sighting but I like hear I saw something on such and such a date you know it was like I mean and then I had to learn about this taboo and this ridicule that was out there. And and I didn't understand like why it's so irrational. Like what is going on here? Why aren't people more interested in this? No, Do you, why are they just pretending it doesn't even exist? All of those things. Yeah.
0: Do you think that is, because um, Dave and I have had this conversation. Do you think that is a function of an organized effort by the government from early days to, to socially engineer a response so that we are predisposed to dismiss it? Um, because, you I mean, we've talked about this uh, at some length, that's, that there was a conscious effort through these various programs to sort of just psychologically push that subject to a place where that will be our instant kind of response. I mean, is do you feel like that's what you're pushing it up against?
1: Yeah, I think it, it in the in the 50s, especially was when it sort of got rolling, you know, and I think it was. I mean, officially, because, you know, we know about the the. Uh, you, I don't know if you readers know about the CIA meeting, the Robertson panel that met, I think it was 52 or 53. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was a CIA meeting in which they actually published a document saying we've got to use ridicule to tone this thing down. It was in black and white. Uh, we've got it. We've got to debunk it. You know, I mean, I won't give you know. I could talk about that for half an hour, but that's just the essence of it. And that that report was sent around all over to all the government agencies. It wasn't made public, of course. And yeah. then Project Public, of course, was, uh, you know, just dismissing cases and and making up ridiculous explanations for cases. Everybody trying to tone it down because it was during the Cold War, and ridicule was one of the tools for that to make they, people they... Not, not engage. Yeah, yeah, and they
2: specifically in the Robertson uh, report, I think they the panel uh, committee or whatever panel, whatever they're called, um, uh, that they, they talked about how they needed to bring the mass media into the program is make you know sort of uh, recruit them whether they know it or not into ridicule exactly right. and debunking. You know, so I was you know I was saying, like I, I, as, a, as a comedian, I feel a certain responsibility to redress that. Yeah. You know, because comedians played a big role. It's
1: really, really shocking. Yeah. And they they talked about um, making documentaries, mass media, using using mass media in all different ways, commercials, uh, making documentaries that might, you know, serve their purpose. Infiltrating civilian groups was another thing. Mm
3: -hmm. So
1: and then yeah, I don't know if you all remember the Walter Cronkite special. I don't know. It was in sixty eight. Mm-hmm. You know, the NFL's, uh what was it called? Uh, I just don't remember. See, these are the things like when I get in a podcast, yeah. I never know what's no, going to come up. No, I, I know, yeah. You don't have to be encyclopedic,
2: encyclopedic en- on this. Can- <laughs> I know.
1: It was influenced by the, by the Robertson panel, though, because one of the Robertson panel members was actually part of that show and was on it. Mm-hmm. And there was a letter that, that was received through the Freedom of Information Act written by one of the panel members to another saying, Yes, we, we were able to achieve what we wanted, you know, using the Walter Cronkite uh, opportunity to try to get their ideas across. So it was it definitely had a big effect. Well, and so fi- yeah, so I mean it was kind of engineered, you know, and it's culture and like we're left with the legacy of that yeah. decade after decade it just sort of perpetuated
2: I think because I think a lot of people now think the stigma about UFOs was something that just naturally occurred because it's crazy and that it wasn't it wasn't a deliberately engineered thing cause, because because there were kind of two eras. There was the era before the Robertson uh, panel, and after. And before that, there was mainstream media coverage, like Look magazine, Life magazine. They all did huge articles saying UFOs seemed to be real. Before that period, and then after that period,
1: they did them. You look and like did things after that too. I mean, there mm-hmm. there are things that keep coming out, good books and stuff. But
2: nonetheless, but if you can get the most <laughs> trusted man in America. Well, I've only seen sort of his summation at the end of that special, where he basically says it's all nonsense. Mm. Um, so it was get, shocking. Yeah, if you can get the the most trusted man in America to go out and and just serve your ends, it's pretty effective. Well, it
0: seems You're right. it seems like thanks in large part to your efforts um, over the past, I guess, two decades of getting, you know, starting with the reporting on the Kometa report and. And then subsequently the 2017 story, which really does seem like a threshold moment for this entire conversation. It our our approach here is really one of well the our assumption and and I feel like it's an accurate one even publicly is there is something here. This is not a question of is it are they are they seeing things like no the the settled question seems it is, is they are here. There is something. Going on, and you don't presume to know what it is. You don't, you know, you report from these, you know, incredibly impeccable sources. uh, uh, You know, who trained observers. You're just telling what they see. But once you've read this, there's it's very hard to go back (laughs) and listen to the, you know, kind of flimsy. Okay, well, it was uh, it was an atmospheric. It was a light. It was a swamp gas. I mean, these sort of flimsy excuses. So. It's I, I'm curious um, because 2017 was so pivotal. That's kind of where I really woke re-woke up to it. I like you, communion was huge for me. I had some early childhood experiences that probably opened my mind to the possibilities of this type of phenomenon. But it was really like holy smokes! Like so, this is it's in the times, you know, this is being reported. There's they are funding this. They're not telling us everything, and then it seems like some level of confirmation of, you know, grudging admittance from the military that, OK, yeah, that that does that is a real thing in space if it's the Tic Tac video or that kind of thing. So I was wondering, I'm just very curious what those days were like for you in 27, you know, as this story was coming together. You know, of course, I have these kind of like Watergate, you know, parking lot conversations in my mind that were, you know, the deep throat, cigarettes being smoked, you know, whatever it was, but I'm curious what the actual did it was it a long time developing or did it fall in your lap this footage what walk us through that a little bit.
1: Sure. I mean the way I'll tell you the way it all happened was um uh it was actually now Chris Mellon who has come out he before he was off the record about it but he has now talked about it. So he I mean, Luis Elizondo was was the head of this program at the Department of Defense called ATIP, right? Which you, I'm sure you and your mm-hmm. your listeners are probably familiar with the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. And nobody knew that program even existed. And so he was he was resigning in October of 2016 from that job. And he um because he wanted to, he thought he could accomplish more on the outside than he could on the inside because they weren't providing resources for him to do what he felt needed to be done to deal with this topic and this this issue with UFOs. He couldn't get any information to the Secretary of Defense. He just couldn't get the job done. So he decided to resign and work on the outside. And so as part of that process, um, they invited me, Chris and some other colleagues of his invited me to a meeting with Lou. It was, I believe, the day after he resigned. It was either the day of or the day after. It was right at that time and i went down to washington and spent about 3 hours uh, with him and with um J- jim semivan hal putoff and chris Mellon. and they were all there and I, I had my mind blown i had my mind blown at that meeting i mean i was shown
2: can you can you give us just a little background know, everything on, about the program can you give us just a little background on who those uh, other those other participants are cuz i know like hal putoff and jim semivan for people who do, who might not have heard of those guys
1: Sure. I mean, Hal Putoff is a physicist, theoretical physicist who's been deeply involved with this topic for decades. He used to work with remote viewing for the government and um way, way back, the SRI when they were doing all these studies of remote viewing and and psychic abilities with various people, and then he he's been involved with the UFOs. I mean, he's a true insider uh, who knows a lot. And I've known him for probably 15 years or something like that. And then Jim Semivan, I don't think I'd met him in person prior to that meeting. He's a former high-level CIA official who had also re- – re- he was retired at the time, but he was very involved with the topic as well. And they were starting a group called To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences, um, which Lou was joining after he resigned from the Pentagon. And I, I so they were – it was partly, I think, you know, so they were all – Forming this group, which I had already written an article about prior to this, but it wasn't getting a lot of traction. So they so were all in this meeting And Chris media. Mellon, was, yeah, and Chris Mellon was was a former um, uh, Secret, uh, secretary of defense. Uh, let's see, uh, under secretary of defense, I believe, for intelligence, it was you know a government official who had helped Lou and worked with Lou and helped Lou kind of make his transition from that job to coming out. He was just a he still is working behind the scenes really hard and he's responsible for a lot of the good things that have happened in the last six years so anyway um he um he was the one that actually invited me to the meeting i mean they obviously all agreed to it but and i just sat there across the table from lou for three hours and looked him in the eye and got to hear got to know him got to talk to him ask him any questions i wanted i was shown you know all the interesting documentation that has since dribbled out but it had seen the light of day at the time um, was learned about Harry Reid's involvement in the program, which was a crucial element, uh, was seen a document, a letter that he had written requesting special access status for the program, which I think has since been released um, performance reviews that you know gave Lou the highest, highest level of, of ratings when he was in his job. And then I was shown those three videos. Uh, Lou didn't show them to me. Hal did. He sat down at a computer and just looked at those videos. And so for me after you know after 17 years of reporting on this and as you as you know in my book I was advocating that there be a government agency yes. to study this. Mm-hmm. It wasn't exactly the type of agency that they had that I was hoping it would be how it would be I was hoping it would be more, more out in the public but nonetheless for me to learn that there was one and to be shown the proof of that and to meet the people involved and be able to report and so, you know it was just a, a major event for me as a, as a journalist after all those years you know to suddenly be handed the, and it was kind of like it was handed to me in a way I mean I just they just knew me and trusted me so they wanted to get the story out and they knew I had a connection to the New York Times and so it seemed like the natural way for them to go so I um, yeah I, I was went after that meeting I I went to my colleague Ralph Blumenthal who is a a freelance who was a freelancer for the New York Times. At, at that point, I wasn't connected to the New York Times except through Ralph. And so together we pitched the story to them. And um we had an actual in-person meeting with their director of investigations from the Washington Bureau at the Times when he came up to New York and showed him, you know, at that point I was able to show him everything. Um and because so I was I didn't walk away from the meeting with any documents, but I was eventually given them so I could show them to this editor at the Times and they just they said, well, we'll let you know. And they went, he went back to Washington and we got the call. Go for it. Do it. And that's when they assigned Helene Cooper to work with us, who was their national security reporter, an unbelievably highly respected reporter who, on The Times who knows everybody in the Department of Defense and covers, you know, all defense related issues. So we were absolutely so fortunate to work with her and have her name on the story and. Um, and yeah, they recognized that it was a big story. They were smart enough to see that. So that's how it all happened. And then we spent, it took about two months, maybe a month and a half from the time we got the green light until we actually came out, maybe a month and a half. Mm. And a lot of it hinged on getting Harry Reid on the record mm. to say, yes, I did arrange for the funding for the program. Yes, i the program does exist. I'm behind it. I, I helped set it up. I supported it. I got the funds and we, we had no idea if he would ever acknowledge any of that, you know. So Helene flew out to Las Vegas and met with him in person and he he, he told us everything, everything. And so she, and, we were just elated after that meeting. Yeah.
2: yeah. And how long, how long yeah. did it take to get the green light from the first time, from, from when you presented the materials to the New York Times to get the green light to, to pursue the story? How long did that take?
1: I would say from the time we sat down with Mark Mazzetti, who was the you know in person i mean we had pitched the story earlier Then the next step was to meet with him i'd say from the time we we gave all the showed him all the stuff and then we got the call it was it was about a week mm-hmm. i think from when he went back to the zero no more than that
2: and no then more than it might have been five and then the procedure so to get I the like. to get the article written and then through the editorial uh staff at the new york times that was how, what was that like
1: that was about a month and a half um it's it's intense i mean dealing with the editors is very difficult at the times uh they they have a lot of control they scrutinize every single thing they will they will tell you you have to do certain things like we had to put some skeptics or debunkers in there to say say things that really had nothing to do with the story mm. you know it was just it, just nothing to do with it but they said well you've got to have some skeptics.
0: right find somebody who doesn't believe it, it and give them relevant. time yeah that's yeah frustrating but
1: Exactly, you know, things like that. We wanted to say certain things that they wouldn't let us say. I mean, you have to, and you have to pick your battles with the editors. You have to really fight for certain things, and you got to let go of other things. So, but basically, they were. Re- I mean, they're also very good editors. I mean, I'm not complaining. They're very good editors. They know, you know, they know how to do their job, and it, it benefits the writers to have the good editing. But um, it's also a kind of a push pull thing, and it can take a while to go through that process.
2: Yeah, I, I'm asked mostly because I think there's there's kind of a, an absurd notion circulating among sort of the, the debunking community or the skeptical community that the media are 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 diving into this story because because they see it as a big money maker. That you know the idea that that, that the media, like the New York Times, is uncritically uh, uh, digesting all of this and uh, disseminating it because they think it's a it's a huge popularity grab. And it seems like uh, that's the exact opposite of your experience.
1: I would say so. I mean, they're nervous. They, you know, covering UFOs, that's sort of a going out on a limb for them, right? I don't think they had any idea how big this first story would be at the times. Mm. And then if they were doing it for money, then why aren't they doing it a lot more than they do, right? They Mm. don't do it very often. When they do, do they skeptical reporter, Julian Barnes, is now the one covering it. So... i I really don't think i mean
2: yeah it seems like the new york times has done everything in their power to undermine the initial reporting since you guys released
1: yeah i mean i i'm not going to comment on that but (laughs) i will that's that's your opinion um you know we have done a series of stories since that first one yes but not so much recently
0: Mm -hmm. it it makes Uh, me curious what you, how you feel about the current state of the conversation because I, I, and I sort of, to me we have sort of two interesting recent examples of the conversation. One you have uh, Kirkpatrick the head of Arrow um, and for those you know who, it's the all domain anomaly resolution office which is, largely exists because of your work and the work of Chris Mellon and the fact that this became such a such a big topic of conversation that it seems like they were almost forced to to acknowledge it and there's been senators uh, now supporting this endeavor and there seems to be almost bipartisan support for this endeavor even though there's pushback but he was quoted i think in his kind of big anticipated sort of um uh, uh, uh talk with with uh, this hearing mm-hmm. to say that he hadn't seen and I'm paraphrasing of course but he had he hadn't seen anything that Went outside the laws of physics that we could explain, and sort of threw this, like, wet blanket, on on the situation. So you have sort of that, which was kind of like, oh, got a bit a bit of a buzz kill, and that's disappointing. And who's this Kirkpatrick guy? And then you have uh, Gary Nolan, who we we've had the chance to to speak with, and of course is the um, professor of pathology at Stanford, very respected, big ally of this conversation, and. Um, who you know? Just a few days ago, was like, one hundred percent. They're here. There's reverse engineering programs. Absolutely, it's all. They've been here for a very long time. And so we have the. And he, I think, uh, represents this. I, I want to say just the the current. Um, there's just a. There's people like yourself and Gary Nolan with this credibility um, that is outside of the kind of you know, uh, that are data people, research interested in in that kind of thing. So I, I'm i just curious. It feels like a digging in of heels on both sides. I'm just sort of curious how you would characterize the where we are. What's the state of the conversation right now?
1: I mean, I think the digging in of heels that you described is really with the arrow with the Department of Defense, because that, that hearing was disappointing to many people. Like you just pointed out that uh, I think he was probably not being very forthcoming. I think he knows more than he was willing to say. I mean, and people weren't happy with that for good reason. So that's the Department of Defense side. But then it's the Congress that's really been the one that's pushing this forward. Um, And they are demanding more from Arrow. They're demanding certain things from Arrow. They're asking Arrow to step up to the plate and to deliver documents to them and reports on who they interview and all this. And so I think the push-pull you're describing is between the Congress and the Department of Defense, basically um so we have to take our hats off to congress for passing legislation that is making these things happen i mean two years in a row the ndaa had these big sections covering the uap topic it's just you know astonishing when you think about it that that's happened and that they were the ones that demanded that arrow be set up some and you know but they're also congress is also getting their own reports from whistleblowers and others who want to just give them information? It's not all going to Arrow. Yeah. So, I, I, um, I, I assume
2: you probably have sources who have spoken to Arrow that um, and to Senate, uh, Senate and congressional members. Um, mm-hmm. I, I get the feeling there's a frustration that, that people keep bringing information to Arrow, and that it, it doesn't seem to be taken seriously or investigated. And I, and I know for for me, I th- I thought something very strange about that hearing. Was that as he's trying to basically deflect almost, you know, the whole story, he also shows a video that seems to show an object defying the laws of physics. And there's been almost no follow-up what? on it. They show this sphere. That that has, a yeah, the, a sphere that has no, you know, no, no lift, no, no, no visible means of lift, no flight surface, no control surfaces, nothing. Just a sphere mm-hmm. flowing through, flying through a combat zone. Apparently, right. uh, in violation of the laws of physics, because we don't know how you make anything shaped like that fly. And there's there right. was there was no follow up in that hearing. Like Christian Gillibrand didn't ask any questions. He showed it and said it's an unexplained. But no one said, "Well, tell us why it's unexplained. Tell us, explain what what you can't explain about this." And and there's right. and there's been no media follow up on that. He showed this thing, <laughs> that's inexplicable. No.
1: But he also gave the impression that he thinks he's going to be able to come up with explanations for just about every case there is.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe, he, maybe he would have said, well, we still have to study this, this video. We don't know if it, if it, you know, we don't know what it is. I mean, uh, you know, he, he he's very much oriented towards solving every anomaly.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Didn't you get that feeling that he seems to think that that's going to be the ultimate result? of, I And mean, it's not going to be, but... That's his goal. So I don't know if he would ever acknowledge. I don't know how much he would acknowledge. It's a really interesting point, though, that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. How do you the show that
2: is- and then not address it?
0: Well, I feel like Good the question. the trick is in the name, right? Because I actually wrote it down wrong. I, I had written down the all domain anomaly research office. And that's not what it is. It's the resolution office. Like I I feel like <laughs> exactly. it speaks to what you're saying, which is like, we're going to. And, and he, he was very clear about like, we just want to have we just want to get everybody together And then we want to hand it off to all the different agencies. Like he seemed just his his seemed like his mission was to get this off his plate as quickly and cleanly as possible, because I will make sure everybody's plugged into everybody else and did not seem to be. um, It always makes me kind of the the question that always is in my brain is like, who's the bad guy? Who's the uh, we know government is not monolithic. The Congress does seem more sympathetic towards this issue um, than it has been in my lifetime. Uh, at the same time, we have this fellow who I don't know from Adam, but he, you know, he seems to be in charge of a program that he d- doesn't seem crazy about, or he seems to be dubious of. Um, so, I, in your, you, you know, many more of these, many more of these people in the inside government, and is there, is there a villain? Is there someone we can just point at and be like, they're the problem? Is it the Air Force? Is it? I mean, how would you describe the pushback? Is it legacy um, programs that no one can kind of sneak into? Or um, I guess what who's pushing back on Sidney Kirkpatrick when Congress is pushing him uh, from, you know, from the front to be more forthcoming?
1: I don't know. I mean, Sean Kirkpatrick. Sean, oh, Sean my bad. So I'm so make that so. okay. No, I mean, I don't think it's any one. First of all, I think Sean Kirkpatrick is probably part of the part of the pushback world right himself he doesn't need anybody to push back on him he's in, he's already yeah. doing that anyway i mean that's where he comes from that's his that's his position on this you know uh, so i think a lot of people consider him to be part of that one of the main forces of that really um and you know i think it comes from all a lot of different places and it's very subtle and you can't really say, well, it's one, like you you pointed out, it's not one agency or one group of people or one, you know, anything you can really necessarily put your fingers on. Um, but, you know, uh, whistleblowers who might try to come forward, some of them have faced repercussions for doing that. And they don't always even know where it's coming from. Sometimes they do know. It could be coming from the agency that they're working in. Well, even, you know, the company they work for doesn't want someone to be t- People to talk about this,
2: yeah. Well, I was going to say, it seems like even – well, like Lou Elizondo has gone through waves of people trying to discredit him since he's come forward in 2000. Since, since right, but that's open. been
1: more the UFO, UFO community than it's been anybody really – I think it's more the UFO community, if that's what you're talking about. Well, I, I,
2: know, than... well I know he also had, had – uh, within the Department of Defense, people claiming that he had no affiliation with ATIP. If, if he was involved with ATIP, he certainly wasn't in a high-ranking right. position and – and I know Harry Reid came out and very forcefully defended him, but it's yeah. And, right. But it does yeah, seem they like, had to the But it does seem like maybe is the. Do you think maybe the the push in the UFO community to discredit Louis? Obviously, they, there's that inbuilt uh, paranoia about uh, the military and intelligence operatives in the UFO community. But do you think there's also maybe uh, a it's being directed from within the Department of Defense? That there's
1: I don't think being... what goes on in the UFO community. No, I don't th- I just don't believe that that the what what's goes on I think the UFO community is kind of in its own bubble world. I don't think that the I mean there may be there may be trolls and people that infiltrate the Twitter Twitterverse mm-hmm. to kind of you know there could be on that, I mean, on that level. I mean, I really, you know, I'm not in a position to know because if it's if it's all undercover, then I'm not gonna be in a position to know what's happening, you know, undercover. But Um, there are just elements out there that don't want this to come out and Mm -hmm. they all do whatever they can do within their own pathways, you know, to influence it. Um, And there are plenty of elements that do want it to come out too. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So I think we have, you know, it's moving in the direction of coming out. I mean, there's no question that the forward motion is the, is what's, is what's winning here um i would i would i wouldn't you know and the congress has played a big role in making that happen and it is bipartisan it's it's really uh
2: which
0: uh so i haven't I seen a lot of in a pretty long encouraged time about it yeah. you know that's good i'm i'm happy to hear you're encouraged exactly about it.
1: it's probably the only thing.
2: yeah at least since since
1: pre-obama yeah, days think,
2: i mean if you look back had, from 20 20- since the, you know the pre-obama days there hasn't been much bipartisan legislation of any sort on any subject and suddenly we do have uh pretty much unanimous bipartisan legislature being written by, you know, Kristen Gillibrand and Tim Burchett should not be allies on anything, Uh, but they are in this, this story, you know,
1: exactly. It's true. And it's wonderful to see that. And it makes sense because this is an issue that transcends any almost transcends human you know, the normal human issues that we deal with every day. It's, it's why should, you know, where's the partisan aspect of this? I don't think there really is one. So it's kind of a universal thing, right? So, yeah. And it's a national security issue. For so I think it's it works, and I'm glad for that. But um, I yeah, I just think if you you have to look back from where we were before 2017 and compare it to where we are now, and then you really can see how far we've come. I mean, it's it's phenomenal to me, especially after having been around this for 17 years prior to that.
2: Yes, well, I get seeing to, uh, the difference. You know, that which, Reminds me of something I wanted to ask you, which is like when you were first looking into the subject, were you aware of George Knapp at that point?
1: Oh yeah, and I, you... I, I remember watching his is that that series he did, um, what, I forget what it was called. You know, it was a oh the multi, best multi evidence TV was that... series he did about UFO UFOs. Evidence. Best evidence UFO it... evidence or something. Yeah, yeah, UFOs best. Evidence. Oh yeah, I was definitely very uh, you know impacted by him and learned a lot yeah. from him. But were you, yeah.
2: was was it and was it in any way a cautionary tale though? Because George, who was a pretty serious journalist in Vegas at the time when he did the Lazar story, became that UFO mm-hmm. guy for the rest of his career. Did you did you know. did you uh, see that happening? Did you see that in his career and go, well, maybe I don't want that in mine?
1: Well, I was I was more. I don't think I really cared if it was in my if. Because, I, I mean, that's what I was doing. And so I wasn't going to hide it, you mm-hmm. know, and I didn't want to cover anything else. So, I mean, yeah, what else could I, you know, <laughs> it would be a fair thing to say that I was a reporter who covered UFOs. But I was also extremely careful and, and I think more conservative, perhaps, than George in terms of what I, what I covered. And I was writing for mainstream n- news. I mean, his his focus was his Las Vegas station, so it was more local. But I was writing for national you know, national media. So, and I would do stories that would go out on the wires all over the country. And so they had to be, you know, were, there were there's a certain level of almost be, being conservative in a certain way, being so factual and kind of conservative that nobody could really argue with those stories. Like something like Lazar is way more out there, right? It creates all this controversy and look what he's claiming. You know, I would have never written about something like that, even though I was interested in it. I just stayed very much, you know, on the Cometa report. and The next one was on a report from a NASA's former NASA scientist about aviation safety issues involving UFOs. And then, you know, very kind of just data driven, factual, conservative stories. So I never was I never got flack from any of those stories. So George was he was in a position to cover a lot more kind of controversial topics than I could because of the way I was positioning myself was, and I was working with a public relations firm in in Washington and I was really trying to get to the Congress, get to the policymakers with the kinds of stories that they could accept and relate to. So I had to be very careful about what I wrote about and that was sort of my mission, you know. Whereas George was at this Las Vegas station and he it wasn't like he wasn't out in the national media so much and he could just play with more different different things. He had the opportunity to do that. He was in a different kind of scenario than I was with a different purpose really. So um I think that was but you know I I thought he was a great reporter and I learned a lot from him and I'm sure he had, but in some ways, it was more fun to do what he was doing, to be able to cover Bob Lazar and have all everybody, you know, talk about it, and and uh, it's so interesting. You don't really know what the answer is, and but I was just sort of taking these more these drier kind of reports that were you just couldn't argue with, but they to me they weren't really dry because you know what we're look what we're dealing with here, but. Anyway, so that, that, I was really trying to make something write something only that a, a member of Congress could have it on their desk and read it and not be at all like, "Oh, this is weird." Mm. You know that I wanted to affect that kind of person.
2: But now it seems like the story itself is now maybe backing you <laughs> into the quarter where you have to sort of now report on elements that sound like the Bob Lazar story, you know, the sort of things that, uh, that Gary Nolan is going public with, you know, the idea that these reverse engineering programs do exist and these craft do exist. So do you, do you feel, how do you feel now yeah. with at, that the story's moving into this area after all these years?
1: It's, yeah, I mean, it's more interesting, but it's also harder to get stories into like mainstream, large mainstream papers um, uh, with that kind of a topic. So the challenges mount the further along we go basically for me as, as trying to report on things as they move it, yeah it's just more of a challenge because of, there's more resistance in the main, mainstream you know for those kinds of topics but it's just it has to happen it's the it's the direction we're going in so yeah. I'm mean, trying to make it happen in the way that I think is really credible and you know try to bring it out in as, as good a uh a, you know a, as well respected a venue as possible so it's not just something that bubbles around in the UFO community but Again, I'm still on that same path of wanting it to get into the mainstream. That's where it really matters.
2: Mm. Otherwise,
1: you just do the choir, right? If you just do yes,
2: and it's
0: and
3: it's, a,
2: and it's a pretty crazy choir, a lot of ways.
1: <laughs> right.
0: Yeah, I have a question so, about how uh, how do of- you how do you negotiate with? I mean, I guess the question is like, what's a what's a bigger challenge for you? Is it or what do you think is a bigger challenge to the to the conversation? Is it UFO Twitter? That sort of Kind of semi hysterical space, or is it government obstinacy? Uh, you know, like what? Because I I do, you know, feel uh, a sense of that we need we need books like this and journalism like this to to uh, you know mature the conversation beyond just like everything's a conspiracy, everything is out there. I guess what is your feeling about what's the greater? Um, hindrance at this point do you feel like government's kind of buckling but then the conspiracies get all riled up and are creating this sort of pullback where people are like well it all can't all be true I'm just curious if they're what your thoughts are on
1: that I mean I don't I don't even go on Twitter, so I I just stay away from the whole Twitter universe. And sometimes people will send me certain tweets or something like that that are relevant to me, but I don't spend time on it. So I just sort of know what it's like from what people have told me occasionally. I might have looked at it occasionally, but I'm not part of that world. Um, but I think the challenge really is, is that there's so much. First of all, that everything that's important is classified. That's really difficult. Because if you want to write a story, let's say, about crash retrievals, like like Dave just mentioned, um, or reverse engineering, you can never prove any of it because it's all classified. So the, the challenge is, you know, that's a big part of it. And the fact that the people, so many of the people that are willing to talk about this will only talk off the record, right? So you can't print it. Um, or, um, and then you know that like the members of Congress know so much more than they're willing to say. So there's all this information out there, you know, that in various ways that you can get access to, but you can't put it out for the, in the media. And so that's, that's so frustrating, you know, because if you only could, it would change everything. So it's really, the, the, I think that's the challenge. You know, you know that people know these things. So, the, and I think the members of Congress, even those who know, they, they're in no hurry for it to come out, right? It's like, let it, let's let it take as long as we can, is sort of the attitude, right? It's like, you just, it's, it's the resistance just sort of is, is, is baked in, and they're not jumping up and down to have it happen as soon. So, you're kind of battling that resistance, and you're battling the fact that so much of it can't go on the record. And so how do you, like, if you're a reporter and you, you've you talked to, you know, 12 absolutely convincing people and only two of them are going to go on the record, yet you know what all those other ones have said, but you can't even talk about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so like, you know the story, but you can't write about it in a way that's convincing. That's, you know, imagine how frustrating that is. That's yeah. kind of the situation I find myself in.
0: So not to put words in your mouth, but is it fair to characterize what you just said is that you believe these programs perhaps or not perhaps do exist and you simply can't get enough people on the record to speak about them versus the question of do they exist?
1: I would say it's as Gary Nolan said, they exist. I mean, I have no doubt about that. that There are programs, there are uh, materials that are being held by those programs. They've been around for decades. There are enough enough people who have come forward privately about that. Not just to to me, but to Gary and a lot of other people, you know that, um, and to the members of Congress that we know we know that's the case at this point. So how do you how do you get that in, in a story, you know, with enough uh, proof or documentation or corroboration or whatever you know editors require? Yeah. Um, just because you know it from talking to a lot of very highly credible people is not enough. So that's that's what the challenge is for a journalist. But I have no doubt that it's true. I have no doubt about that.
2: And it seems also, I mean, there's, there's even a problem of getting that information um, from those sources and even from Congress and you know Congress to Arrow. Like it seems like that information isn't even yeah. making it to Arrow. Like,
1: or it's supposed to go from Arrow to Congress, really. And the yeah. question is, is that happening enough? And I, I'm not sure that it is. But they a, a congress has to really stay on top of it because i'm not sure that i mean arrow was supposed to be sending over transcripts and reports to congress and i think that i don't really know but it, it was sort of suggested to me you know and around the time of the hearing that maybe that was one reason why she had that hearing to kind of move them along so you know there's there yeah there's that too there's yeah. the communication if- that has to happen
2: you feel like the the information is more running from Congress to Arrow, or or because I I,
1: don't, I think it's more the other way. I mean, I think the the way it's set up, as I understand it, is that Arrow is supposed to report to Congress.
2: Mm-hmm. But I'm Arrow, not sure,
1: if, if if Arrow wanted information from Congress, I'm assuming they could get it. But but isn't there know. a problem
2: with the, that that Kirkpatrick doesn't even have security clearances to look into the some of the some of the some of the witness testimony that he's getting? He doesn't have the security clearances to investigate it.
1: I don't know. I, mean, I know he has security clearances to hear classified testimony or t- classified yeah. reports from people who come talk to him. He does have that. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether he has clearances to follow up on certain leads, I don't know. I don't know how much he is following up on leads. I mean, that's that's the other question that people have. If he gets testimony, therefore they should be investigating and following up on it. Maybe they are. We wouldn't hear about it, you know. Yeah. We don't. Really, I don't think a lot of people know exactly what's going on. Inside of Arrow and what is being done and what's not being done. Um, so that's hopefully we'll find out more. but they should be following up. I mean, that was one of the things in his testimony at the hearing that he didn't reference the fact that he has heard from uh, people re- related to these programs. He didn't even mention the programs. You know, yeah. there's no evidence that anything's extraterrestrial. He said, Well, the people who have been telling about the programs are providing that very evidence. Yeah, and he's not he's acting like that's never happened. Like yes. he hasn't heard from these people,
2: or saying there's. So no, it's evi- kind of a. Yeah, no, no evidence yeah, of some strange. new physics. But if you look at even,
3: the, but he's
1: the, also saying I think there's no evidence that they're extra Yeah, right he doesn't really think they are. If some people who have been inside the program dealing with, you know, materials that are not made by humans, that's pretty good evidence.
3: Yeah, and he's heard yeah. some of that. Yeah, it.
1: he's heard some
3: of that. Yeah, so maybe he
1: doesn't consider evidence if it's just somebody reporting that to him.
0: So I don't know, but just I'm sorry, go back just a second because you're you're you know that he has heard that there is debris that people have studied and reverse engineered. So you just want to be clear, you know, you know that.
1: Yeah, as far as I know, yes, that people have. I mean, I think a lot of them have gone to Congress, but they've gone to Arrow too and they have spoken to step maybe you know to staff there about uh their experiences with these programs and their knowledge or their knowledge of the programs um yeah that's all part of the process and that's why the whistleblower protections were set up because normally they couldn't even talk about these things so now they can and they're doing it
0: You've, done, yeah. you've created your own cometa report here I mean it's uh, you did you know it's like you've got everyone together and then you put I there was one anecdote in this which I just thought was kind of um I don't know it, it it the the validation of witness testimony which is so dismissed by the debunkers so easily the the callous way that these convicted... you know the the conviction is just sort of swept aside and that all the expertise of these witnesses are sort of so dismissed, but there was a, a moment that you have between the pilots who engaged the UFOs, one the Iranian pilot and one the pilot from Peru, who um, mm-hmm. were never met, um, but you had brought together for this kind of committee. Um, it was such a sort of human moment. Do you want to just describe what that was and what that kind of meant to you?
1: Yeah, that was a that was one of my favorite moments. So it's it's interesting that you remember that of all the things in the book because that really was. So they were they were the so both those cases involved a pilot attempting to shoot down a UFO. In what the Iranian pilot felt he had to do it for self defense because there were these projectiles that were heading right for his plane, and he just thought they were going to hit his plane, so he locked onto them with his um, missiles, and when they got to a certain Closeness to him, the, all his equipment went out and he couldn't fire the missiles and that happened a few times and he just, he, you know, luckily they never hit his plane but that was his reason for doing it and then the uh, the Peruvian pilot was actually instructed to go go up and uh, shoot down this thing that they thought was a spy balloon and when he actually shot it, then he realized it was not a balloon it was a UFO by the way it behaved. So both, and there's a whole story with each case, and they both yeah, wrote their amazing. own book. Yeah, yeah I mean, they, they authored those chapters themselves. So you're not, you're really hearing directly from them. So it's really fascinating to me. But um, rather than go into all the details of the case, just to answer your question, um, in 2007, James Fox and I organized this press conference in Washington in which we brought people from all over the world to come and speak. And both those pilots came. And so they met for the first time, the Peruvian Oscar Santa Maria and the um, Iranian, whose name was Parviz Jafari, who's, who's now dead, unfortunately. But it, I remember being at this table when they they were together for the first time, talking about their incidents, and they were realizing that they were talking to the only other person in the world that we know of who had actually tried to shoot down a UFO. It was just something so profound about being in the being able to witness that. I mean, it meant so much to them to meet each other. There was so much emotion in it, you know, for them to meet their counterpart and this very, very unusual thing that had happened to both of them and um, for them to go over with each other what it was like and what they did and how the UFOs responded and how they felt Oh, I just felt like yeah. I was privy to a very special moment at that. Yeah, it was really, really a great thing that they got to meet, and that I, I was privileged enough to be there for that meeting. It was yeah. really, really great. Great.
2: I say, I, I'll put yeah. it for anyone, assuming that somebody does listen to this, um, oh, they should are. look. They should see because a lot of that uh, that that panel that you guys set up was covered in James Fox's movie. I know what I saw. I think that's the documentary where he, exactly where we 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 the coverage sort of gathering all those people together and t- and going to have, have this uh this uh meeting which i guess was you were hoping that that event would would spawn more uh action within government and more interest
1: i was, I was hoping and of course it got a lot of media coverage for one one or two days and then it's just over and nothing happened exactly mm-hmm. i mean i remember i had this I had was had a group then called um the Coalition for Freedom of Information. And I had a lot of support from John Podesta and Fife Simington and others. And we had this petition we wrote, and we had it on a big easel blown up, you know, at the conference, asking the government to take on, you know, the laying out all the reasons why they should investigate this and take it seriously. And it was signed by all these people, like the ones who came to talk at a press conference and like Fife Simington and other people. And it was just like yeah i was just kind of lobbying for that um not knowing that that was the very year when the osap program was beginning to be set up which was the precursor to ATIP, which i ended up reporting on in the times so it, you know it was kind of an irony in that sense um but that was secret so yeah i mean that, that the press conference was really really wonderful i encourage people i mean there, there there should be a video just of that whole press conference somewhere on youtube i don't know mm-hmm. Or you can just sit and watch it for those who haven't and they only talk for like five minutes each it doesn't get boring at all but it's it really isn't it was an amazing group of people yeah i've, I've watched really i've watched the
2: entire conference yeah, myself amazing. and it's yeah highly yeah. recommend it also I've, and also recommend james fox's movie about it and also his, his previous movie um uh, out of the blue which i know for yeah. me i know for me was a, a movie that that got me to take the subject more seriously and also got me to take the history of the subject more seriously Cause I hadn't really, what? I hadn't really, I hadn't gone done, you know, I didn't dive into the history of it really uh, until that point. What? And again, and he yeah. did the same thing you do in your book, which is this, just this overwhelming number of credible people telling the same, basically the same story over and over again, that there's something right. real happening. And it's effective, I, right? It's yeah, effective. V- very effective. I, I mean, you know, it got, you know, it certainly broke through my shell. And got me to think about and and after and after watching that movie, I read your book pretty much right after that. Um,
1: yeah, I also think and that, James has done great movies, The Phenomenon, and then this more recent one about the case in Roswell, Moment of Contact. He's he's really making a, a tremendous contribution, and he's a good friend of mine. So yeah, giving him a.
2: <laughs> well, I'm I'm a huge fan
0: of his and yeah. the work he's done. Yeah, The Phenomenon was 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 amazing. I, we were we were saying. Yeah, we were talking about um, the Brazil case that was recently he was he was talking about on Rogan. And I know there's been a lot of discussion about that. We were just we were talking
2: about it. Well, yeah, there was the clip that uh, James Fox put up on on social media of you uh, confirming that your sources uh, were confirmed that the U.S. military was involved in the Virginia um, incident. That they were involved yeah. in moving materials out of Brazil,
1: and that the incident itself is happened just the way it's said to have happened. I mean, yeah. that's really shocking. Right? And he's working really hard to try to get a hold of the videos and the photographs and all the data that's out there that we don't have yet. I think it's just a matter of time before he's going to have that data, and that'll be interesting.
2: Yeah, and for those <laughs> for those who don't know, the Virginians it was a a, a, a crashed UFO in uh, Virginia, Brazil, and w- that involved two uh, bodies, one that was actually
3: they were yeah, live at first. Yeah, one live was, ones. yes,
2: one that was live and one that was recovered by a police officer who then suffered uh, m- severe uh, medical complications as a result of being exposed to it. And I guess, and I guess the they died. They yes, died, from died. It. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh,
0: who confirmed this to you? <laughs> I want to know. I want to know who confirmed, you know. I know you won't be able to tell us who confirmed it. to no, There's
1: been, been a fair amount of confirmation on that case. Absolutely. I mean, the doctors, I've talked to them myself who, who worked on that guy who died. I mean, there's these, the circumstances of a death really. I mean, he had this little cut on his on his shoulder from having grabbed this entity when it was alive and it cut him and, and he got an, a horrific infection and nothing would. No antibiotics would work. This this one guy I, I, who I know who I spoke to was really old. I think he's done autopsies. He's like famous in Brazil. He said he'd never ever seen anything like that, and he it attributed could... it to him grabbing the creature. For somebody to get an infection that severe and die that quickly,
2: and they were never able to determine is, um, the nature um, of the infection, were they?
1: Well, they were able to determine what organisms in his body. Yeah. And that's all. That's interesting too. I mean, um, and I'm trying to learn more about that. And actually, Gary Nolan, I hope is going to help us try to understand all of that. But um, one of the one of the organisms is something that is normally only found on animals. It's not, you know, which is kind of interesting because maybe that would be found on a, a UFO alien walking around. I don't know, but it, it's not. It's not normal that it would be found in a human body in connection with a severe infection like this. Let's put it that way. Nothing about it was normal. But, you know, you, we don't have enough records, but we do have one autopsy report on that, on the, the individual who died. So it's, there's a lot of interesting stuff. stuff and in the witnesses
0: case. you spoke to in regards to this case, they stand up the way the witnesses in this. In other words, they sort of pass your journalistic kind of level of credibility in their stories or the, um, or is it people yeah,
1: in government not, or? James has talked to um, lots of military people in. Britain. Yeah, I haven't. I just got interested in the autopsy reports. And so I've talked to some of the doctors, but that's those are the only people I've talked to. James is, you know, you guys might have a great time if you had James on the show. Well, we'd, we'd love he's, to. He's, he knows that. Game.
2: Well. Yeah, I'll, he's
1: been working on it for years. And he's talked to everybody in the country, and it's just a fascinating story to hear him talk yeah. about.
2: But well, believe me. I'm, one,
1: I'm absolutely peripheral. I was
2: going to say, believe me, when we're done here, I will be pressing you to, to help
1: us hook up <laughs> with
2: uh, with James. <laughs>
1: I'm curious. I'd be glad to do it.
0: In terms of um, the, just I mean to 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 pivot for a moment because your surviving death is such an interesting book, story, documentary, um, and I'm wondering if you you know there's nothing in here about like abduction, for example, Um, but. Mike, I I guess we we've talked a little bit about how some of these topics can dovetail and swerve into each other a little bit and they there is there's um so I'm I was wondering initially what drew you to this topic, which I suppose there's similarities because you're you're reliant on eyewitness testimony and what you can confirm. Um and again, I don't wanna I wanna have you tell it, I don't want to try to put words in your mouth, but what, what drew you to this subject matter um were there any similarities anything from the ufo topic that drew you to it or was it just a completely separate interest of yours um and then maybe we can later sort of talk a little bit about the abduction phenomenon
1: okay um i would say when i first and so the book is called surviving death and it's really dealing with the question of what is the best evidence for the possibility that consciousness survives death and that's a question I've been interested in for years, and I sort of explored it while I was doing reporting on UFOs. And I got involved with some people making documentaries on it. I met some of the people and, you know, had a real interest in some of the reincarnation cases that were coming out of the University of Virginia. Um, and so but I never saw it as having anything to do with UFOs. I always thought of it as something completely separate. And the same thing when I wrote the book, you know, I had written my, my other book in 2010. And then there was a documentary made for History Channel based on my book. And that was in 2011. And then I was just kind of ready to do something else. And my publisher actually invited me, said, do you want is there something else you want to write a book about? And I'd literally been thinking at that very time about doing a book regarding this question of survival of past death. So I just jumped into that. Not, And it was uh, it was really a journey for me to, to go on because I. I hadn't already done it you know it was like I knew some of the things I would write about I had an outline but I it was much more of an unknown process for me than writing UFO book was because I'd already done all that work Mm. so anyway I jumped in to answer your question I never thought of it as being connected to UFOs and it was only after years after that Um, I guess it came out in 2017 early you know before the New York Times so It's been since then that I've learned more about the connection and I've learned that a lot of people do consider people I respect, really great thinkers in this field, do consider there to be a connection between consciousness, between the afterlife, between, you know, paranormal abilities and all the things that I've written about in that book to the UFO phenomenon. And so I'm much more open now to seeing them as one kind of universe of thing. But when I was doing the book, I it was not at all in that space. so it's kind of an interesting evolution that I've been through after writing the book. So there's nothing in that book that would ever suggest any connection because I didn't I wasn't aware of it then. And it was also journalistic. I mean I was really trying to just take the studies and the evidence that was out there um, in a lot of different areas that point towards this reality of survival and kind of writing them in a journalistic way and, and providing evidence, but in an interesting way. And and just like my UFO book, I invited individuals to write their own chapters in it. Um, You know, so it was a little more, it wasn't quite as hardcore as the UFO book. It was a little more personal and exploratory, and you're dealing with much weirder stuff um, than, you you know, UFOs. At least in my original book on UFOs, it was really about data for a physical object in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. But with surviving death, I'm dealing with, all kinds of weirder phenomena like poltergeist and mediumship, and you know, paranormal levitations and um, ap- you know, near death experiences, reincarnation cases. You know, it's a little more out there than UFOs, ironically, but it's true.
2: Do you think maybe just the, f- the fact yeah. that you're you able at some point in your life to uh get around that barrier to taking UFOs seriously? Do you think that same? uh i guess opening of of the mind did that maybe lead to taking this subject more seriously and and applying a journalistic rigor to it
1: yeah because i think it's there are two big questions that i've always been interested in you know are we alone in the universe and what happens when we die they're both like big human questions right Mm -hmm. so yeah i mean it's the same kind of i've always had this kind of probing curiosity about these bigger questions and this one was just as important to me as UFOs or are we alone, right? Mm-hmm. And by the time, yeah, I was really ready to explore something else at that point. I mean, I had been so fixated on UFOs for so long yeah. I and mean, the book had been out, the book was out. I felt like, what more do I have to say? It's all in my book.
2: Yeah. And right? I yeah, oddly, so, oddly, it's the subject yeah. that, the other subject that Robert Bigelow is pumping a lot of money into.
1: is Right, uh, right now. And he's too Exactly. That's his primary interest. And he went from UFOs to that. Although I think he was interested in that actually previously when he was involved with NIDS, the National Institute National Institute for Discovery Science, but he never officially, they didn't take it on, but he's always been interested in it. And then he set up this institute. And I worked at that institute for over a year, maybe a year, a year and a half um, on this initial project that they did a couple of years ago. So um, that was after my book came. And yeah, so yeah, I've had a lot of time swimming in the waters of the whole survival question and all the people that are engaged with that question and then trying to see how that connects with ufos it's really interesting and there are people that think about that a lot more than i do there are great thinkers like jeffrey kripal from from rice university and whitley streber is another one who who write a lot about the interconnections colm callaher is another one who reported on the skinwalker ranch incidences um you know, there, these are people who have thought a lot about these connections and have talked and written about it. Um, so I learned a lot from them.
0: I'm curious that we, if any of the witnesses that um, saw these uh, saw these discs, um, did they ever lean into did they ever offer up anything that seemed maybe outside of the able to prove through data thing. And I speak of like abduction. A lot of times people who are witnesses have, you know, additional experiences that are harder to quantify, harder to, um, I'm just wondering if you ever had to leave out any information that went, uh, that went outside of what you were trying to kind of journalistically provide provable, you know, provable through other sources, et cetera.
1: I would say the answer to that is yes. I mean, because there, you know, if I had brought, brought that kind of stuff in at the time that i was working in 2010 say when i wrote my book it would not have worked out it just couldn't have had the impact that i was looking for um and so you know there are there are military witnesses just like anybody else who have experiences and have and they get affected by these encounters in ways that they're not necessarily going to want to talk about that's even more taboo than just reporting on seeing an object right yeah. So, yeah, there, there are plenty of them. And I think, you know, more and more now they're they're more comfortable talking about it. But there's still a, a huge stigma against that level of engagement with UFOs, as we all know. And I hope that that changes. Um, and I think that our government, by putting in the NDAA, that they that they want reports on medical effects. Yeah, I, mean, I don't know if you notice that, but that's in the language of the legislation, that they want reports on people that have had medical effects from these encounters and medical effects are one of the things that happen to people who have these strange experiences, you know, who are, um, it sort of opens the door to the whole, I don't know, just about abduction, but the whole experience or realm realm
3: mm-hmm. of
1: UFO studies. Uh, so you know, hopefully, uh, mental effects. You know, psycho. I think psychological effects is in there as well. That's what that's all about. Yeah, it's and, like the, the also, consciousness effects on people. And there's also yeah.
2: the the notion that people who have had a UFO experience often have other what, for lack of a better term, paranormal experiences that start occurring after they've after they've had a UFO right. encounter, that they suddenly encounter other things that don't seem right. I mean, I mean. Uh, Colm Kelleher and George wrote about it in their uh, Skinwalkers at the Pentagon. The people who are exposed to events exactly. at Skinwalker Ranch suddenly have weird, weird, really bizarre things happening in their lives after that.
1: Is exactly, that the- yeah. Same thing, with, same thing with the UFO sighting you can have a UFO sighting and then have the weird things happen in your life, or you have paranormal abilities that you didn't have before. You start having clairvoyant dreams, you know, dreams that predict the future or clairvoyant abilities or telepathic abilities. You know, something in your brain is like switched open and nobody really understands that, but it affects consciousness. And then the question is, well, does consciousness affect the UFO? Is that part of what determines your experience? These are the kinds of questions that are so interesting to think about. We don't know the answers, you know, but there's a, a component of consciousness of that has a pay, plays a big role. And so consciousness is what I was really exploring in my book, Surviving Death, not as it pertains to UFOs, but as it pertains to all these interesting abilities that people have. And mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the fact that consciousness can operate separate from the brain. And so then you, you can just put it all together into one huge mystery, you know, and they all seem to dwell in the same type of mysterious realm. Maybe and, the uh, maybe it's another dimension where the UFOs dwell, and so do the people who who die and go somewhere else. I mean, we don't know. We don't know.
0: It, was there, yeah. and are, in in surviving death with the the children that ex, are experiencing a past life or have this sort of uncanny evidence or, you know, information, you know, the recipe for napalm or whatever else kind of wild, um, you know, uh, traceable pieces of evidence. Was there ever anything that in your mind kind of unified those stories? Was there any experience that tied them together? Any? And I'm, I'm reaching because I don't I don't know the answer. But um, was was there anything that you found similar to their backgrounds, upbringings, birth, anything that that could suggest some? Well,
1: that's interesting, because then I have to, again, rely on the research of the University of, West of Virginia, that the, the uh, division of perceptual studies there where they've asked all those questions and they've done studies and basically i mean it it appears that there is no unifying factor in terms of walk of life or race or religion or birth or anything like that but the the one interesting thing is that the majority of the of the cases in which children remember these past lives their previous life involved a violent and premature death Mm -hmm. an, an unnatural death, you know, like being in a war or being murdered or crashing in a plane or something really traumatic, and so it leaves you with the feeling that maybe because of that there was some something unresolved for them. Um, I think it's something like seventy-five of the of the of the cases. Seventy-five percent of them involve children who had a, a violent premature death in a previous life, an unnatural death which is really interesting. Um, now, the, the two cases I wrote about, only one of them, the, the second case of Ryan Hammonds didn't involve a uh, pre, I mean, the guy was in his 60s, but he just got ill and died. It wasn't like that. But the majority of them are, and I think there are more boys than girls also because boys tend to have violent deaths more than girls. Hmm. <laughs> so um, mm-hmm. that's, that's. I think that was one of the few unifying factors they were able to really put their finger on when they, they looked, at all the cases and you know did all this data analysis to see what common threads they could find. And um and then the other thing of course is that in cultures which believe in this and are open to it, they're going to get a lot more reports than they get from cultures that aren't. So people think, oh, it happens more in India or you know in uh, Sri Lanka or somewhere, but I don't know if that's true. It's just that those countries feel free to report on them and talk about them. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the data that they've they've gotten on these cases comes from those countries. Um, yeah. I'm sure so, a number of the incidents. But really, it's interesting. Violent deaths. huh?
2: No, I was just going to say, I'm sure if there they're, yeah. they're, they're are incidents in our culture would just be treated and cured um, <laughs> rather than rather than listened to.
1: Exactly. I mean, yeah. And the and the children often have a kind of traumatic. Another, I mean, they do often have these horrific nightmares about the previous death which is often a very unpleasant death It's sudden scary you know but yeah so it's it's an interesting question uh, it seems to happen to just it's unpredictable who who is going to happen to and where and why and except for this one element
2: yeah well, i definitely know reading your book made me as a as a lifelong atheist or almost lifelong uh going back at least to about the age of six um it it, it made me less complacent about my notions about whether or not there's any kind of persistence to this uh to our our uh, our minds so definitely definitely made me uh less uh I, less closed to the subject i would say
1: well that's cool i mean i don't think atheism is in contradiction to that either because i'm not talking about god no i'm not talking about a belief in any deity or anything i'm just talking about and there are studies that show that consciousness can function separate from the body when the person's alive so the question is does that happen when they die and if it does it doesn't mean you can't be an atheist and still accept it
2: yeah no i, think I don't I, see it. yeah well i think i'll stick with with not with not uh believing or particularly even liking god if there is one yeah um but i, I get, that. But, I get uh, that yeah but uh i but i'm definitely open to the idea that there yeah that there is perhaps some kind of persistence uh, of uh, consciousness and of, of self i guess
1: right and that doesn't have to have anything to do with god
2: no if it's it quotes. could yes, it could just be part of the natural natural sciences that we don't understand yet now in your
1: journeys
0: uh, in your journeys and travels and discussions and hearing all of this testimony and witnesses do have you reached a personal conclusion um about what you think UAPs are is that would as i understand as a journalist you're not way I, i'm just curious if you have a if you feel like these are outer space visitors, or uh, as it gets into the sort of weirder department of something that's sort of parallel to us, um, as we discuss kind of entities and other side and near death and the kind of ubiquity of experience, I'm just wondering if you if you're leaning one way or another?
1: Well, I certainly don't see it as being as simple as visitors from some other planet, which is more when I started, like, even in my book, everybody was saying, Oh, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. That's what the French people said in the Cometa report. Extraterrestrial hypothesis was sort of the going explanation, sure. which meant it is from another universe, another solar system, or whatever. But I don't think anybody really looks at it that simply anymore, um, you know, because there's so much more that's been learned about the sort of high strangeness elements of it. And there's so much more data that it doesn't always seem feasible that that it's that simple um and so i don't i can't say that i really have any kind of conclusion about what i think it is um it's it's just something way more complicated than just somebody getting in a ship and flying here you know Mm -hmm. I, i mean it could be that these these aliens have been if you want to use the word aliens or whatever they might be, this non-human, non-hu- I guess, non-human intelligence is a, is a term mm. that's being used a lot now. Um, that that whatever that is could have been here before on the planet Earth before we even got here. Yeah. Uh, they could be coming from under the oceans or you know another dimension and we you know any place we just don't know. Is there but anything? I think they've been around for a long time.
2: Is there anything yeah. you really hope it isn't?
1: Um, I hope it isn't something that's malevolent and wants to get rid of us. We kind of deserve it, you know.
0: Yeah. Well, let's you know, let's keep <laughs> it positive. Let's you know, I was I'm, I'm more, you know
1: we,
0: we let's let's put in some I'm, good you know some good cheer for humanity. We don't have
1: to. That's what, I, of course, I hope that, and it would be great if if whatever it is was able to teach us and share things with us right. that could help us improve life on this planet but we're, we're not doing a very good job so far of showing that we're worthy of that I don't think yeah so they might you know if they wanted to remove all of this, these humans from the planet earth and start over I can't I could can understand why
2: and it doesn't if they have
1: that capacity I have no idea
2: yeah it doesn't seem like well it, it certainly doesn't seem like we have any capacity to defend against them if they do have that capability and that desire
1: right. they def- I would assume that's true and yeah
0: they definitely show the, the attitude, every description, they show the attitude of someone dealing with a crazy person, you know, it's just like, okay, well, we'll just, let's keep a certain, distance. Let's like, look, don't engage, don't piss them off. Don't, you know, don't do anything. It's no sudden movements, just kind of. So there is a little bit of a, a kind of asylum approach to, you know, um, then they seem whoever they are very far, you know, not wanting to overly engage, um, which I I guess makes sense, which sort of fits with the hypothesis.
1: It does because they probably get to try to, we try to shoot them down or something. Mm -hmm. We're so hostile and militarily focused. I mean, I don't know. But of course the experiencers will tell you they have very close up personal experiences with them. And the problem is there's no data to prove that. It's just somebody telling you that. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it's always sort of has this nebulousness about it. It's always not quite concrete enough for us to put our fingers on, like you were just describing and that's the nature of it you know it's never quite there
3: mm-hmm. but it's there mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and you know imagine if the potential that it would have if it wanted to i assume it could just land vehicles all over the planet if it wanted to right yeah. make itself known 100 percent, and it's not doing that yeah. so maybe that'll happen at some point maybe maybe the phenomenon itself will be what creates our what we call disclosure, you know, maybe it will uh, manifest in such a way disputable. But so far, that doesn't seem to be the agenda.
2: Mm-hmm. So, well, it <laughs> seemed, And it does seem like even now. Uh, if, we
1: have no control over it. Yeah. yeah, we have no control. So anything's possible.
2: And if we do get the disclosure everyone's asking for, I think there's a good chance that there'll be a little bit of disappointment to realize that the main thing that's going to be disclosed is how little we know or understand about what's going on. Could be, yeah. And what yep. would be your what would be
0: the next shoe to drop in that would in in if we're keeping with this in sense of encouragement, the sense of that which I think is valid, and I agree with you. I don't. I think there's more movement publicly than I've seen in my life, and it and like yeah. I said, thanks to the work that you've done and Chris Mellon and all your colleagues, um, is it's there?
2: It is so encouraging that you're still optimistic. Yeah,
0: right? I know. It's like I'm happy to hear it. So in in to follow that encouragement. What what would you like to expect to hope to see in six months to a year? Is there any sense of in your mind of what that could be, um, you know, uh, you know, beyond just
1: sheer prediction? Yeah, I mean, I think the the aspect that's really sort of on the radar right now is the whistleblowers, not just whistleblowers, but witnesses coming forward and providing information to Congress. So that has potential. If some of that is made public, you know that has potential to really shift things a lot. If the information that they provide is is somehow being made public, the parts of it you know, it is mainly classified information, but you know somehow some of that could come out, or just sort of general generalities about what they're saying could come out. Um, there could be another hearing. There's already talk of a of, of Tim Burchett is talking about wanting to do a hearing. Maybe there'll be a hearing in which some of these actual whistleblowers or witnesses are brought forward. It won't just be government officials who are testifying, but it might be people with actual firsthand information that can come forward. I mean, that could happen. So I think, you know, that that's sort of what's the next level, I think, is, is something that's going to come out of all these uh, people who are coming forward and who had the permission to come forward now because of legislation that's been passed and the kind of umbrella that Congress is providing for them to do that. And um, it's just a question of how much of that will be made public, you know, and uh, can we nudge that forward? And uh, that's, and if it, if, if some of it is, you know, maybe some of those uh, people will will just come out independently from the report from what they've provided to Congress. Uh, I think there's a lot of a lot of them that want this information to come out, so we can't really predict what they might do in the next year. But that's sort of where I think the real juice lies right now and the real potential for for the next step is, is the fact that they are now able to talk to Congress and to Arrow and that they're doing it. And where is that information going to go? How much are we going to learn about that? And there's a lot of motivation among cert- certain Congress bring this out and to have more hearings and to try to bring it out into the open so let's see hopefully that's going to happen over the next year that's sort of how i see it um that's where i'm focused you know sort of really paying attention to what's going on there with that in that universe universe well, i hope that so, i
2: hope that's the case and i i feel pretty sure you'll be part of a part a big part of that nudging uh in the work you're I hope doing so. i
1: try to be it's hard <laughs> for a freelancer to get stories you know articles published but yeah. i'm i'm working on that yeah, yeah. and yeah. i've been in touch with a lot of people and trying to help bring things out so we'll just have to see yeah. what happens what i can do but there's a lot of people working on it it's unbelievable how many people are working behind the scenes and and uh, in, in public too that are just making such a difference
2: yeah well and i would certainly rec- recommend everyone reads reads your book uh ufos generals pilots and government officials uh, go on the record. A title I can never remember if I don't have to read it. So okay. there, but it's a great title. Uh, I recommend people read that. And def- and your 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 series that you did for Nat Geo. I think um, one to- UFOs ex- yeah. exploring the unexplained. It was
1: called. I was just going to mention that it's called UFOs investigating the unknown. Actually, and the We actually made that for CNN. It was made mm-hmm. with a with a company called Breakthrough Films, who, who also made Surviving Death on Netflix. Um, they're a really good film company. and they and I had a big role in this National Geographic one. It was made for CNN, and then CNN tanked over the summer. They just dropped their whole documentary film department because yeah. they were bought a merger. It was a disaster. And we thought we were going to lose the film completely because it had already been delivered to them. But fortunately, that oh, got it, yeah, Nat Geo got aired it and then they put it on Hulu. so it's it's a i think they did a great job i think it's a really good kind of if you just want to get the basics about ufos in a really entertaining enjoyable way i'd really recommend watching the series and it's no
0: this guy recommended it to me and it was it's fabulous and my wife and i were talking about it for days and it's very um it, it really is it does speak to the audience we we hope to bring like be a bridge we're not you know, we don't claim to be experts of any, we are super curious about it. We think everyone should know what's going on. And the more that, uh, you know, we can just spread the word and, and lead people toward this kind of really data-driven, uh, super credible information, I think will just hopefully help make it uh, just continue yeah, like the... And yeah. the
1: series, just so people know, it's, on, it's streaming on Hulu.
0: Perfect, mm-hmm. so. yes.
1: That's where you. That's where you have to go to watch it. You can get a free uh, trial, thirty day trial on Hulu. So you don't have to pay anything if you just yeah. do that and then yeah. it. Even better. Even or, better. Uh, or
2: you can watch Hulu with commercials <laughs> if you, you want. Go. People can do that too.
1: Oh, yeah. You
0: can. You can at the for fifty dollar the- tier yeah, or yeah. whatever the tier. You know the various tiers now that we have to kind of deal with. Yeah. But... You're
1: actually made with commercials.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah,
1: but get on the higher level you Don't have to listen to the commercials. I hate commercials, but. Yeah. Yeah, so I I would just really, I I think, I mean, I've heard from so many people, you, who just have been really affected by that series, and I've heard so much good feedback, so. It's a great um, resource. I wouldn't, you know, I just hope people.
2: Me too. And and, and and again, I guess we'll just, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time today. I am so,
0: yeah, it was great to speak with you. Thank you so much. (laughs) We would love to do this again at some point. There's so much to talk about as, as shoes drop or don't drop as we move forward. We'll need your advice Mm -hmm. and counsel and expertise on this, but thank you for the work that you've done on this, because I think it's been just seismic and has really, um, you know, I, even, even with something like the, the group of witnesses brought together where, seemed like there was a lot of attention and then it seemed to not lead to anything. I think that's incorrect. It's clearly just created this sort of building, building wave and building change and building psychological change in the public. Um, It's all to your credit. So I think it's, um, you know, it's a real service.
1: Well, thank you very much. I've done the best I could do. I hope it, I hope, I know it's helped. So, but I also, have to also acknowledge so many other people who have contributed. So it's been and more and more people are coming on board now since 2017 it's just magnified so many more people involved so yeah so i appreciate that you guys had me on i wish you all the best with your podcast and i hope it i hope you develop it and get get whatever you want to do happens for you
2: thanks a lot leslie. thank you thanks yeah. leslie thanks a lot okay we'll a lot. See i hope we will see you soon